How are you? All right, thank you. Sorry for that. Anyways, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Redemption Church. I have a messed up foot, so I'm just going to kind of sit down. I hope that's okay. Uh, before we get started, why don't we pray? Father, we uh, thank you so much for how great and good you are, and that you're holy and perfect and pure in everything, and that that's the kind of love that you love us with, is a holy, perfect, and pure love. Father, we thank you for this great love for us. We thank you how you've demonstrated it uh, by sending your only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to be buried, to rise again, and to uh, ascend to heaven, to your right hand, to have authority over the whole earth. Um, Father, I pray this morning that we would remember the gospel, that good news of Jesus Christ and your great love for us. I pray that um, you'd help me to remember it. You know, through this week, how many times I've come to the end of myself. I pray, Father, that you bring me to the end of myself now, that you bring all of us to the end of ourselves so that all we have is Jesus I pray, Father, that this morning your Holy Spirit would have said what you'd have said, that we would hear what you'd have heard for each one of us. I pray that you would stir our hearts' affections for you, that you'd stir our hearts to know your great love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're um, finishing the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew like 5 through 7, I think for... I don't even know, several months. So it's kind, of, it's kind of cool that we're actually finishing. I don't know how many of you guys are going to celebrate that and be excited. And then I think Zach talked about it earlier, but next week we're going to actually start a three-part series on purpose, vision, and mission of Redemption Church. Um, I'm getting a lot of feedback. I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm doing that. But anyways, we're starting a three-part series on the purpose, vision, and mission of Redemption Church. And uh, Zach already said a little bit about it, but it's just a time for us to kind of like step back, remember what we're doing here, make sure that we're all on board. I mean, August, September, it's time to go back to school. It's time to like, that's when we really start our year for some reason around here. Uh, And just to kind of get geared up to go into the fall and remember that we're here to lead people to Jesus, to lead people to Jesus. We're going to talk about the mission and we're going to talk about how you and I and each and every one of us can be on board with that and how we each have a a role to play. But anyways, today we're, we're finishing this Sermon on the Mount. I was going to tell you first a little story. Before I worked here, I used to work for a residential builder in town. Um, and on one side was, we were a builder, on the other side we were a developer. So we would go in and we would develop, you know, an entire subdivision. Uh, and then we'd go in and build all the houses in the subdivision. That's how we operated. Um, so the part of the company I worked for was the builder. Uh, we'd actually build the houses and the other part would develop the subdivision, right? Anyways, we would do this really fast. We would put up a lot of houses every year. We were, when I was working for this particular builder, we were like the largest one in Augusta and one of the fastest growing builders in the nation. And we were building like over 400 houses a year. Like we were like really getting it. So we'd have to move dirt, develop the subdivision, and then get to building some houses, right? Anyways... In one particular neighborhood, we had to move a lot of dirt to build a 
to build up a few lots. You might already see where this is going, right? So the developer finished up, and we came in. We built house one, we built house two, house three, and so on, and we're going. And about six months after those first houses sold, where we had moved all that dirt to, to make a lot that we could build a house on, we got a call in our quality assurance department. And guess who was over to quality assurance department? It was me. It was a lot of fun. A homeowner called and said that they had noticed some drywall cracking, which is pretty common, right? But uh, they wanted us to come and take a look at it. So I don't have anything to do with the development process. I didn't even have anything to do with that initial foundation building type process and all that. Uh, but it's my job to go out and look at the house. I go out and look, discovered what, to be, what appeared to be uh, some major like settling issues. <laughs> and uh, then we got an expert in to look at it and found out that we had a real problem on our hands. The dirt that was moved to make these lots wasn't compacted enough when we built the houses, and these are pretty large houses. And so these houses, this house in particular, started sinking. It was shifting, it was actually settling. It was more than just settling, it was, normal. It was not just like a few little drywall cracks. This thing was going to fall eventually. And then the next door house had the same problem, and then another house had the problem. And the builder I worked for was faced with a decision to really do things right, which would cost a lot of money and take a lot of time and a lot of effort, or to try to do like a patch job and move on, just like fulfill the obligation to the minimum and move on and just kind of hope it was good enough. This morning we're going to talk about what Jesus talks about, the building your house on the rock or on the sand. And we're in Matthew 7, 24 through 29. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important to remember, again, that this is part of the whole Sermon on the Mount. This isn't just, like we know this little passage, a lot of people know this passage. You build on the rock, you build on the sand. Obviously, the rock's a better foundation than the sand. Uh, this isn't taken apart from the rest of the sermon. It's part of it, and we're going to show how that is. But let's read what's said here in verse 24 through verse uh, 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fail because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their own scribes. So the passage starts out with this line, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. That's where we have to start. Jesus has given us a solid foundation on which to build. He's told us what it means to build on the rock, and it's in these words of his where that foundation lies. Any other way than this is shaky ground, and whatever is built on it will fall hard when the storm comes. Therefore, since these words of Jesus's, these words of his, are the foundation on which we build, it's imperative that we understand what words we're talking about and what Jesus has actually said. I don't know about you, but when I see that Jesus says to hear and do his words, to be like the wise man who built on the rock on a firm foundation, my personal instinct is to just go back to the text, make a checklist or a to-do list, find the things that he wants me to do, and do them, right? 
But the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen over the last several months, doesn't really have a to-do list. Uh, looking back over it, I can make a pretty, a pretty solid to-don't list. That's just what I'm going to call it. But I, I don't see much in the way of to-dos. He does say that we need to give and pray and fast in secret uh, to forgive others, to lay up our treasures in heaven, and to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And that phrase, seek first, that should like put us on to something, right? That's a priority. That's a big priority. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. But more than giving a to-do list throughout this Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that Jesus issues a series, this is what I call it, of gut checks, right? Of like ways to check our heart, ways to really think about who we are and whose we are uh, by looking at our life. He tells us what a kingdom heart looks like in comparison to a worldly heart. Or more narrowly than that even, he tells us what a kingdom heart looks like in comparison to a merely religious heart. And he challenges us to submit all areas of life to his empowering presence and lordship, making him the king of our hearts and us into citizens of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is questioning what it is we really want. And he does this over and over and over again throughout his ministry. We've seen Jesus do this, and we'll continue to see Jesus in the very next chapter start to do this some more. Uh, those who would are would-be disciples who like to follow him, and they come to him and say, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to be one of your disciples, like the rich young ruler. Do you guys remember that story? He comes to him, says, I want to follow you. I've been, you know, I've obeyed all your commands. Um, but what it, Jesus kind of confronts him with the question of what do you really want? To follow Jesus because only he could lead him into right relationship with the Father? Is that what he really wants? Is the to follow Jesus because he knows that that's the only way he can be righteous? Or does he just want to be sure that he knew what he needed to, to know in order to secure, secure his own righteousness with God, right? He wouldn't let go of his stuff. He wouldn't let go of his material things, and he walked away sadly. That's what the, the scripture says. What's Jesus doing there? And then in the, the, the scribe in, uh, in the next chapter of Matthew, he comes and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And what did the scribe really want? To follow Jesus and be changed by, at any cost by Jesus? Or to do that as long as he could still be comfortable? Right? If we want to answer Jesus' ah, challenge to hear and do his words... That is, if we want to answer his challenge to follow him, then we have to question what it is we truly desire. Each and every one of us truly desire. Are we seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, or are we seeking something else? Reggie, a couple weeks ago, gave us a gospel principle that I'd like us to remember as we talk today. He said, true righteousness begins at the end of yourself. I don't know if you remember that. True righteousness begins at the end of yourself. So here is what I want us to get today as we conclude the Sermon on the Mount. This is where I want us to go. I want us to see that a kingdom heart, a kingdom-focused heart, reads this sermon and comes to the end of itself completely unable and only desires to follow Jesus and be changed. While a merely religious heart reads the Sermon on the Mount and finds a to-do list enough to, make it, enough to make it comfortable in its own goodness to continue on its pursuit of its own desires without worry of future judgment. Does that make sense? A kingdom heart comes to the end of itself 
It says only Jesus. A merely religious heart finds the to-do list, checks off the things so that it can feel pretty good about itself and its own righteousness and not worry about future judgment. So we have to ask what we really desire. And a good place to start searching for what it is we really desire, what we really seek, is to ask something that I think Jesus gets at in this passage, and that is, what will happen when the storms of life come? Right? He talks about the storms coming and beating on the walls of these houses. What will happen when the storms of life come? What will we lose? Uh, David Paulison is quoted in a book called How People Change. It's by Paul David Tripp and Tim Keller, and he says this, what do we fear? Because fear is the flip side of desire. For example, if I desire your acceptance, then I fear your rejection. So a good thing to ask is what do we fear? Because if we can see what we fear, then we can kind of identify what we most desire. Uh, if we want to know what we most desire, maybe you could even ask, what are we most afraid of losing? If when the storm comes, what are you afraid to lose? And on top of that, as we search for what we truly desire and what we're truly seeking, like I think we have to like, we really have to do some heart work here and figure this out. Uh, I once heard Lou Giglio, he's like a pastor of Passion City Church in Atlanta, and he does the Passion College ministry thing. Uh, I once heard him speak about who or what it is that we truly worship, what it is that we hold as most valuable, what it is that we desire the most, and trying to help people figure that out. And he said to follow the trail of time, money, energy, affections, and allegiance. It's five things. Time, money, uh, energy, affections, and allegiance. What are we spending on those resources? Like if we were to look at our checkbook, where do you spend the most money? If we look at our calendar, where are we spending the most time? What keeps us awake at night? That's a good question to ask. What or who is on our mind when we have a moment to think or a moment to wander? What comes to mind first? What are we most loyal to? Won't allow anything to get in the way of. What would we truly consider dying for? If we follow that trail, what are we most afraid of? Where are we spending our time, money, energy, affections, and allegiance? What desires become most evident? What do you really want? I would challenge you to like, actually try to answer those questions. I think I put the question in the bulletin throughout the week to really begin to think about what it is you truly desire because what you're doing with all those things really kind of show what you truly desire, not just what you say you desire, what you truly want is what you're going after. What desires become most evident? What do we really want? Here's a good question, I think, for me, and this, this helped me this week. How would Jesus address you if, he, if you came to him and said, I'd like to follow you? I want to be one of your disciples, like the rich young ruler or the scribe in Matthew 8. Would he say, go and sell everything you have? knowing that what you really desire is to feel secure and you seek security in your possessions? Would he say, clear your schedule and sit, and sit a while, knowing that you desire to be needed and you seek satisfaction by filling up your calendar? Maybe he would say, give your clothes away and dress in secondhand clothing, knowing that you truly desire to look good in others' eyes and seek to keep your reputation up by how you dress. Maybe he would say, anonymously serve your neighbor sacrificially and never tell anybody, knowing that you truly desire for others to give you recognition and you feed that desire by doing good things for others to see. What do you say? Get out of the driver's seat, knowing that you really want to have control over everything 
Here's a good question. How can a control freak worship a sovereign God? This is why he asks us these things, right? It's because he needs us to get out of the way for us to be able to see him clearly. Would he recognize your deep desire for the pleasures of this world, for things that make you feel good in the moment? Would he call you out on your desire to be the smartest in the room and call you out? I don't know. Knowing, here's the thing, maybe he call you out on that because he knows that an all-knowing God just really isn't that spectacular to a know-it-all. I think as I've tried to digest this this week, over the last couple of weeks, I think he'd call me out on my desire to be independent, not asking for help, we even talked about that a few weeks ago, to gain your approval and others' approval, uh, and on my deep desire to make myself good enough. Right? I asked the question earlier, are we hearing and doing the words of Jesus? Are we seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, or are we doing something else? All those other things that we find at the end of the trail of our money and our time and our energy and our affections and allegiance, we have a name for all those desires. It's called an idol, right? If we desire anything more than God himself, then it's an idol. It's something we're putting in front of him. My guess is that we can all find things that tend to demonstrate more desire for something else than for God. Maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one, but that's my guess. Is we'll all look at that money, time, energy, affections, and allegiance, and we'll at least find the things that really compete for being first, right? I think we have to hear the challenge of Jesus and, and to question the foundation that we're building on. That's what I want to get to. Remember, a kingdom heart reads the Sermon on the Mount and comes to the end of itself and completely unable, only desiring to follow Jesus and be changed. And that's the better foundation that Jesus is talking about. A merely religious heart reads the Sermon on the Mount, finds a to-do list, and it's enough to make it comfortable in its own goodness to continue on its pursuit of its own desires without worry of future judgment. And that is a shaky, sinking foundation, and it's going to fail. That's what Jesus tells us here. So what should we do? We'll turn to Luke real quick. Luke chapter 6, 47 through 48. And this is Luke's take on the same sermon, on the same portion of the sermon. Um, And he just says this. So everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. To get to the better foundation, we're going to need to dig deep. We have to dig deep down. C.S. Lewis wrote of our desires that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joy when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our desires are all surface level and weak. I don't think that we so much have to replace our desires as we have to like dig down underneath those desires that we come to and get to the root of our feeble desires and find the better redeemed desires that Jesus points us to. Jesus works this whole sermon this way and teaches us how to do that. Like he exposes the, right, the religious elite of the day, 
their desire and their surface stuff, their surface obedience and their surface appearances and how they never really dig down into the heart issues. So they pray and they fast, but their real desire is to be seen by others, right? And it makes them feel righteous. It makes them feel closer to God than everybody else. The problem is that when you deal with the desire that you have, the real deep desires, the ones underneath the surface, weak desires, they're going to bring you to the end of yourself. And you're going to realize that you can't do it. You can't put yourself in the right relationship with God on your own. And this is painful. This is a dying to ourselves. That doesn't, that doesn't sound pleasant, right? So what are we doing when we dig to find the better desire under our desires? We're doing exactly what Jesus has been teaching us to do through the whole Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at our kingdom up next to his kingdom to see which one is actually better. And this is what I know. I know that we would all say that we know the better way is his kingdom, right, and his righteousness. We know that. But we have to do the work and question whether we really believe that. Like, what's really being shown in our desires? What are we really acting out, right? Do we really believe that's true? I know that we can consent. Yeah, that's true. Jesus' foundation is better. A foundation built on Jesus is better. My kingdom's not as good. But what are we really believing? Like, what's actually been dem- demonstrated? Which heart do you have? A kingdom heart reads the Sermon on the Mount and comes to the end of itself. And a merely religious heart comes to the Sermon on the Mount and makes a to-do list so it can get by and not deal with the worry of future judgment. A foundation will fail. So, the question is, how do we dig past our surface desires to the better foundation of Jesus? I think it starts with getting honest doing the work of checking your heart against Jesus' word and identifying what it is you really desire. Not just what you know you should desire, right? We have to be honest with ourselves about what our actual demonstrated desires are. What we're actually demonstrating that we're seeking first. We've got to ask what we're afraid of. We've got to ask how we spend our time, money, energy, affections, and allegiance. The pastor of Imago Day in Portland wrote a book called A Kingdom Called Desire. And in there he pleads to us. He says, be honest and let the chips fall where they may. We were not given life to waste it trying to be nice and good. We were given life to live passionately for Jesus and his kingdom. You have to refuse to let your life be reduced to the opinions of critics, bystanders, and paparazzi of Christian living. Let us be people who are willing to be honest for the sake of our souls and our children. They need to see authentic faith. And he goes on to say, I hope you will realize that those honest desires are windows into your soul. And however ugly they are to think about, and even more horrific to speak about, they have underneath them an ultimate desire that God can redeem. I read that just because I want us to be encouraged to be honest, like to go through that, maybe that test of your time, energy, money, Uh, affections and allegiance and just have a little freedom to be honest because yeah it's painful but when you dig down underneath them there's something there that God can redeem it's going to hurt a little bit I don't want to tell you anything different coming to the end of ourselves hurts but it's the only way to true righteousness it's the only way to right relationship with our father which is what that really is about 
It's only really good news and our only real hope. And Jesus says in Mark 8.35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It hurts to lose your life. But it's better to deal with it now than let your whole body go into hell. In Matthew 5, 29 and 30, which is just back in the Sermon on the Mount, a little bit when he's uh, talking about lust and, and, and whatnot, he says twice there in the sermon that it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It's going to hurt. Reggie said a couple weeks ago that this coming to the end of yourself, the gospel's going to squeeze you. Remember when he talked about that? It's going to hurt. It's going to squeeze. But on the other side is life more abundant and free than we knew was even an option, and it's worth it. So we have to get honest. We have to go through the pain of coming to the end of ourselves. And then we turn intentionally towards Christ and follow him. That's what repentance is, is to be following one thing, following a different desire, following a different idol, and turning to Jesus and following him instead. Turning toward him intentionally means to start rearranging everything, all areas of our life, to be under submission to Jesus and his way. That's what it means to seek first, right? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness means you put everything in submission to that because that's your greatest desire. This is how we define discipleship around here, and I think it'd be really great if we could memorize it. We're going to keep saying it over and over and over again so that maybe we'll get it. So when people say, hey, what does it mean to be a disciple? You'll be able to answer that. We always say it's leading others to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. Leading, this is discipleship, leading others to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. We totally ripped that off of somebody else, but it's pretty good. Now, I'm suggesting today that you and I purposely turn towards Christ and make a budget of our time and our money and our energy and our affections and our allegiances that reflects that we're actually putting his kingdom and his righteousness first and above all else. I mean, actually... Go and allocate real time and real money, energy, affection, allegiance, like question those things. Get a pen and paper or your iPad or maybe there's some sort of app for this. I don't know. Whatever medium you have and actually do the work. Put it on the calendar. What, put time on the calendar that says you're, you're seeking first the kingdom of God. You've got to put it in the budget. Create reminders to call us back to it in the middle of the night. Pray the Psalms and stir your affections toward God. Question your allegiances, and how they stack up to the kingdom. I get, I just called you to do something, right? We talk a lot about grace, and I don't want anybody to think that I'm saying you're going to save yourself if you do these things. I get if we take pause when doing something is mentioned. Am I asking you to save yourself by doing these things? No. You know, Jonathan Edwards, I don't know if you've heard of him. Jonathan Edwards is probably one of the greatest... American theologians yet heard the objection that if one is earnest and takes a great deal of pains, they shall be in danger of trusting in what they do. They are afraid of doing their duty for fear of making a righteousness of it. And then he offers this bit of wisdom in return to that. There's ordinarily no kind of seeker that trusts so much to what they do as a slack and dull seeker. It's quite a wrong notion that some entertain that the more they do, the more they shall depend on it. Whereas the reverse is actually true. The more they do, or the more thorough they are in seeking, 
the less will they be likely to rest in their doings, and the sooner will they be likely to see the vanity of all that they do. What he's really saying, right, it's really a lot greater risk of putting faith in your doing when you're not doing anything. That's the merely religious heart that gets enough out of it to create a little to-do list, doesn't have to do much, feels comfortable about the future and can move on. The kingdom heart says, I kind of put everything aside and seek first the kingdom of heaven because I'm totally at the end of myself and I can't do it. All my doings, I can't rest in my doings. The sooner I do that, I find that it's vanity and that you become totally undone. Let's remember that Jesus says here at the end of of this sermon, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. And to be sure, seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness is an action. It's faith because of the grace that he's been given, has given us. So to be clear, no amount of money given, time dedicated, energy spent will save you because you or cause you to save someone else, or set yourself rightly in relationship with God or others. Only the person and work of Jesus can do that. That's the gospel. I get that. But if that's heavy, if you hear Jesus say that I've done it all for you, seek me first, because you need to come to the end of yourself, then you've got to come to the end of yourself and put the stuff aside and seek him. I would ask where an unwillingness to take action would leave you? Would you have a heart that comes to the end of itself, completely unable, only desiring to follow Jesus, which is the better foundation? Or if you're not willing to take any action, or you maybe have a more merely religious heart that reads this, finds a to-do list, is comfortable in its own goodness, and could just kind of move on without any worry of future judgment. That house is going to fall. A house is on shaky, sandy ground, and it's going to fall. I'm inclined to believe that Jesus hasn't asked us to reprioritize our whole life with no intention of meeting us there. And if you believe his ways are better than yours, enough to change everything, enough to like rearrange your budget of time, energy, money, affections, and allegiance, that's him at work in you anyways. Only he could bring you to that point. If you're at the end of yourself, you aren't there alone. Jesus means to bring you there to save you and make you more like him. Let's talk really quickly about the implications of this sermon on Christian community too because I think it plays into that. I think it's important to remember that this sermon is about the inbreaking kingdom of God. We've, we've said that many times. And about what it means to be a part of it with others. If it, wasn't, if it was only about us as individuals, then we wouldn't have talked so much about how people in the kingdom interact with other people. Not only do our desires to build our own kingdoms, essentially our own idols, to like raise up our own idols, set us against God and his kingdom, our idols set us against everyone and everything else around us. All of creation. Our desires turn everyone and everything else into a threat. Because we know that in order to get what we desire, we have to come before everybody else. We have to be number one. If we get taken down, everything falls apart and our kingdom fails. And we actually know, I think, I think, we actually know that we suppress it, that we're wrong. We actually know that we're all going to die and our kingdoms won't last. We have to 
these desires that we have, these surface, weak desires and the things that we build our own kingdoms out of, we have to stay in control. We have to stay on top of the whole world around us. And it's a very daunting task. Maybe you get that. I know I do. I've dealt with it, man. It's, there's no rest in that, right? Because we don't actually have the ability to stay on top of everything and to keep everybody in line and under our rule. We weren't, we're not God and we weren't created to do that sort of thing. But when we put God first, nothing and nobody is a threat anymore. If we go down, God remains and we remain in him. And that's good news. Nothing falls apart. There's rest that allows reconciliation between us and the world and the people around us. As, a, as our kingdoms crash down, we submit as common citizens in the kingdom of God and we find reconciliation with God, which causes reconciliation with each other and with others and with all of creation. So this is why only a community built on a foundation of Jesus is sustainable and real. He's the only one that makes a real way for us to stay together. And because we're gathered under Christ, we're free to point each other back to him. We're free to actually invite others into our kingdom, into his kingdom, I, I mean, <laughs> right? Nobody's a threat. We can actually, like, be reconciled to other people. Listen, if you're scared of that doing portion or the seeking and doing something intentionally, there's some good news here that we find in community. You're not going at this alone. Like, we're all going at this together. You're not, we're gathered, uh, you're gathered to others to help you keep finding your identity in Jesus over and over and over again and not your works, right? So we keep coming to church and we keep doing missional community and we press in on our DNAs, we press into each other's lives so we can keep reminding each other, it's not by your works. Nothing you can actually do can save you or make you righteous. Keep selling out everything to go after him, but don't find your righteousness in that. Do it because you're at the end of yourself, right? We have to press in on each other with this. We have to keep pressing in on each other. The good news is that you're not doing it alone. And so when you're forgetful, because you're going to be forgetful, I'm forgetful all the time that Jesus is the one way. I'm forgetful all the time and want to build my own kingdom. Somebody's got to be there. Somebody's going to be there to help remind you that, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and not your own. And there's a final implication, one that we've repeated several times throughout this, this series, and it's this. Uh, it's that this kingdom people is meant to be the salt and the light. And very early on in this sermon, Jesus tells us who's in and who's out uh, of the kingdom, and it looks nothing like what the religious teachers of the day were teaching. Uh, they weren't set, nobody's set up over somebody else or anything like that. He's telling us who's in and who's out, and then he tells us that we're supposed to be the salt and the light, that we're going to go shine the light into the darkness. Through his people, the world should be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because we're supposed to be the salt that makes it good. Through his people, the darkness should be set ablaze with light. All this seeking the kingdom and his righteousness stuff is for you. And it's good news for you, and it's for us as a community, and it's good news for us as a community, but it's all towards the advancement of the gospel through us, right? It's all about advancing the kingdom of God. If we at Redemption Church are ever comfortable with getting our little friend circles together in our living rooms or where we do like the creepy Bible study thing and then eat where nobody in the neighborhood would want to come to our thing, it's kind of weird maybe, 
Uh, if that's all we're, if, if that's, if we're comfortable just making these like little closed groups where we just kind of make each other feel good about our relationship with God, or if we're comfortable with having a certain number of people get here, like if we're comfortable getting to about 70, 80% of these chairs filled up and, and that would be good because it feels like we would make it, or if we're, if our desire is to have a, have and keep a really cool building on Broad Street, um, before we desire knowing Jesus, and making him known, or before we desire to lead people to Jesus, to lead people to Jesus, or before we desire to make disciples that make disciples, we should just close the doors, right? You'd agree with that. What would be the point in making something great out of our name? Uh, Why would we spend our lives together on that mission? It's sinking sand. It doesn't make any sense. When the storm comes, when final judgment comes, Redemption Church would have a lot of blood on its hands. And that sounds really awful. I think that sounds awful. But it's important that we don't miss the gravity of this passage, I think. I don't want to brush over that. We'd be careless and wrong if we didn't take Jesus' warning to have significant eternal implications. This whole sermon has demonstrated eternal implications. Just before this passage, what Reggie spoke on last week... Jesus talked about how some will enter the kingdom of heaven and some will be cut down and thrown in a fire. And Jesus hasn't really shifted gears here. We're in the same conclusion. This is all just the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And this part is not disconnected from that passage from last week, right? So there's eternal implications. And if we're not toward the advancement of the gospel, then there will be blood on our hands. Because the storm that comes that Jesus is talking about, there's going to be house is built on the solid foundation and a house is built on the sandy foundation and there's going to be a storm that comes, is that not judgment? I mean, is that not going to happen? Are we not going to be held responsible and have to answer for that? That's not pleasant, right? Sorry. It's just something to think about. I'll wrap it up with this. Somebody, I saw a tweet this week. I like using tweets. The mission of the church will tread on your life. What will be your response? The mission of the kingdom of God is the mission of the church, and it's your mission. Your mission. Like it hap- this is going to tread on each and every one of us individually. The mission of the kingdom of God is the mission of the church, and it's your mission. If we seek the kingdom of God first, we have to desire to be the salt and the light. So how will you respond? A kingdom heart reads the Sermon on the Mount and comes to the end of itself completely unable and only desires to follow Jesus and be changed. A merely religious heart reads the Sermon on the Mount and makes a to-do list and makes itself good enough and doesn't worry about final judgment. So the questions are, will you, will you question your desires honestly? Will you dig down and get to the greater desire that God has put in you? Will you take action and actually reallocate how you spend your time, money, energy, affections, and allegiances towards seeking his kingdom and righteousness first? Are you building on a firm foundation or on sinking sand? Is your heart set on the same things that the heart of God is after? Namely, making his name great and known in all the earth, right? And I don't want us to think that that means we have to do some grand thing or something really big that each and every one of us has to go and make his name known in all the earth because the truth is that before he wants to change the world through you, he wants to change you. So this sermon has mission and big time implications for the the church and the kingdom, but it has individual implications. 
before he wants to change the whole earth through you, he wants to change you. So I'll challenge us with this. Remember those houses that I talked about at the beginning a long time ago uh, that were sinking? <clears throat> In the end, I'm glad to say that the builder uh, bought back the houses. People had to move out and find another place to live. We had to do a whole lot of very expensive work to fix and all the underlying issues, not to mention all the interior issues. And reno- it's basically a complete renovation of these houses. They needed considerable work, and it was a painful process. But if we hadn't dealt with it, they would have fallen in, and worst case, crushed everything and everyone in them. After a lot of time and a lot of money, we finally renovated those homes and we resold them, but, and that was good. But it's like that with our hearts. It may be painful to come to the end of ourselves, but Christ is the only way to lift lift you off the shaky foundation and set you on the rock, which is him and his words. Count the cost of being a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple? Count the cost. Because the kingdom heart reads the Sermon on the Mount. I know I'm repeating it, but I think it's important. The kingdom heart reads the Sermon on the Mount. It comes to the end of itself completely unable, only desiring to follow Jesus and be changed. That's the better foundation. That's the only foundation that won't fall. A merely religious heart reads the Sermon on the Mount and finds a to-do list. It's enough to make it comfortable with its own goodness and continue in its pursuit of its own desires without worry of future judgment. If we don't take stock when we hear this sermon, right? if we don't like look at our lives and say, are we seeking first the kingdom of God and then like do something about it, we're building on the sinking sand. And we can, like, put the blinders on and not see it. It's going to fall eventually. It's going to come down. What's really happening in your heart? That's what's going on. That's what he's asking. Reggie talked about, you know, a peach tree bears a, pre- a peach. No other kind of tree bears a peach. What kind of, what's your identity? Where are you finding your identity? Is it not in yourself? It's in whose you are and who you are? Is his? Or are you finding your identity in your own desires, in your own kingdom that you're trying to build and trying to set up a name for yourself and whatever idols you're putting up before him? There's no quick fix. There's no patch job. Give everything over to Jesus and let him renovate your entire heart and set your eyes on his greater desires of your weak and feeble desires. That's it. I think the call here from Jesus in his final conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount is... You have to give everything over to him and let him renovate your heart and set your eyes on his greater desires over our weak and feeble desires. Over the next few minutes, we're going to enter into a time of reflection, a time of response. There's a few things that we'll do. Um, One, the band will come back up and they'll sing and lead us in worship through song. I invite you to reflect, to sit where you are and pray and just to kind of think through your desires like your demonstrated desires, what are they? And maybe offer that back up to Christ. You can stand and sing and worship God. We also will take this time to give. There's a giving basket in the back. We're able to, we just talked about time, energy, money, affections, and allegiances. Um, That's just an opportunity for you to allocate 
some of your money and some of your resources to seeking first the kingdom of God through this particular ministry, obviously. And then lastly, we do communion every week. And this is a time for those in the room who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's the only way for us who've come to the end of ourselves and said, there's no way for me to make myself right with God. I believe that my father loves me and that he sent his son. I believe he's done what he said he would do. And when we come and we take, we eat the bread and we dip it in the wine of the juice, we're taking the body that he gave to us, the blood that he shed for us, and we're saying to one another, it's not, you're never going to get there on your own. You're never going to earn your salvation. But Jesus made a way. We believe this. Come to the end of yourself and give it to him. Find your righteousness in Christ alone. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So we invite you as a believer, whether you're a member here or not, to come and take and eat. And um, this morning we're going to come down this middle aisle and then go out each way, okay? Um, If you're not a believer, we ask you not to come. And it's not because we don't like you. It's because, like I said, if you don't believe it, then then you really can't say it. And this action is a saying it. We don't want you to lie to yourself or lie to each other. We want you to hear what we're saying. We believe that Jesus is the way, that he actually has done what he said he would do, and he is who he says he is, and he's your Savior, and he's made a way for you to be in right relationship with God and in right relationship with all of creation. And I'd encourage you to find somebody and talk through that. And then also through this time, we'll have people in the back. They'll have orange lanyards on, and they're willing to pray with you, uh, talk to you if you want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus. So I'd invite you into that. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this, uh, this time together. I thank you for gathering us as your people to remind us of the gospel, to remind us of the person and work of Jesus, to remind us that we can't do this. We can't make ourselves right with you. I can't even make myself right with the people in my own household. We can't make ourselves right with each other. We can't put down our idols. We can't overcome anything. We're just completely at the end of ourselves and unable. But you sent Jesus, and you made a way for us to be in right relationship with you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir us to give up everything in pursuit of your kingdom and that righteousness, Lord, that you've provided so that we would know you as our Father through Jesus Christ. And cause us to rearrange everything, to increasingly submit all areas of our life to your empowering presence and lordship. As we do that, would we lead one another to Jesus? Would we lead others to Jesus? To lead people to Jesus? To lead people to Jesus? Would we make disciples that make disciples? And would your gospel advance in our city and in this world? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.